starting in verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruits. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cut and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Let's pray. Speak, O Lord, as we come to You to receive the food of Your Holy Word. Take Your truth, plant it deep in us, shape and fashion us in Your likeness. Amen. While in prison from 1661 to 1672 for preaching the Gospel, John Bunyan would write nine different books. It wasn't until the end of his sentence that he would pen one of his most widely well-known books, The Pilgrim's Progress. This book is an absolute treasure trove. All Christians should read it. The Pilgrim's Progress, I'll say it again. It is a treasure, and all Christians should read it. 
The book is a picture of the Christian journey, the Christian life. The title, Pilgrim's Progress, it's how he progresses as a pilgrim throughout his life. The main character, clever name, Christian, has a burden on his back. It's not until evangelist comes to him and tells him how he can relieve himself of this burden called sin. As Christian goes on this journey, he's met with all types of people. He's met with faithful, which becomes his companion. He's met with worldly wise, who tempts him to go down the wide path to legalism. He's met with giant despair. He's met with vanity fair and the people who are trying to talk him and faithful into giving themselves over to vanity. But Evangelist tells him, if you stay on the narrow path, then you will make it. The last few weeks, we've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount, haven't we? We've seen just the type of preacher that Jesus is. And like any good preacher, now that Jesus is finishing His sermon, He's calling His disciples, He's calling the crowd to take action. Jesus isn't going to sugarcoat it for us this morning. He's calling the crowd to follow Him, to trust Him. He does this by telling them about two gates, two paths. One is wide and many enter through it and it leads to destruction. One is narrow and only a few go through it. But this path leads to life. The next thing he tells them about, he warns them about false teachers, false prophets. He tells them that you will know them to be false by their fruits. The third thing that he warns them of and teaches them of is fake disciples that find their salvation and their trust in their works. And then the fourth is he calls them to build their house on the right foundation. Because if they don't, when the storm comes, it will fall. And great is the fall, Jesus says, of the one who does not build their house on the rock. And at the end of this message, all of the crowds look at, or all of the people look at Jesus in astonishment because he spoke with authority that they had never heard of. So, the aim of this sermon today is I just want to ask us one question this morning. One question only. One main question, I guess you could say, is who or what are we trusting in right now? Who 
or what are we trusting in right now? We're going to take a look at this in four points today. Verses 13 through 14, the gates. The second, verses 15 through 20, the fruits. The third, verses 21 through 23, the works. And four, verses 24 through 29, the foundation. So in verses 13 through 14, our first point, Jesus is telling his disciples about two gates, two paths. Jesus tells us, he doesn't lead his disciples on to guess which gate they should go through. Immediately, he says, go through the narrow gate, enter by the narrow gate. Boy, this is a good friend. I don't know about you if you've ever ran into the problem of a friend saying, let's go to this place, I'll meet you there, you've never gone before, and you show up and you have no idea how to get in. Jesus, right away, is telling them, this is where you go. He doesn't want them to go through the wrong door. He doesn't want them to go through the wrong door because for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. There are two doors that Jesus is speaking of here. He wants them to go through the narrow, and He's telling them to not go through the wide one. You see, going through the wrong door is not a life and death situation. Going through the wrong door is a life and destruction situation. The gate Jesus is calling them to is narrow. But here He is warning them of the wide gate. The wide gate is spacious. It's easy and comfortable. And it's the popular way to go. Everybody is doing it. Everybody is marching that way, walking that way. Now there is dispute over what the gate means. Some say salvation, others say eternal life. But here's what we can see in this passage, whichever one it is. The wide gate leads to destruction. Jesus is warning His disciples, He's warning the crowds not to take the wide gates, not to walk the wide path that everybody else is walking on because this is the gate and this is the path that will lead you to destruction. Many enter it because it is easy and wide. But just because it's popular and everybody's walking that way, everybody's saying you should do it, does not mean that you should. Here's one way to explain it. Just because something is catchy or trendy or seems to be more tolerable and digestible does not mean it is the way. Because Jesus is a good friend, 
the friend of sinners, he tells them about the narrow gate. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Jesus wants his disciples to enter through the narrow gate because it leads to life. But the narrow gate is hard. It's uncomfortable. At times, it's painful. Few travel it. It's not where the crowds are going. It's the unpopular or the road less traveled. But it's this very gate, the hard, the painful, the less popular one, where it leads to life. Listen here to what the psalmist has to say about the path that leads to life. Because although the gate is narrow and the way is hard, the psalmist tells us, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The narrow path, or the narrow gate and the narrow path, bring us fullness of joy and pleasure forevermore because this is where life is found in in a way that only God works out. The narrow gate may be hard, it may be painful, it may be less entered, but it's the way to life. But how can we be so sure that the narrow gate is the way to life? Because everybody else is going this way and saying to go this way. Everybody's taking the wide gate. We can look to our Good Shepherd who assures us. He says, I am the way, the truth, And the life, no one comes to the Father except through Me. There is only one way to salvation, and that is through Jesus Christ. But this is the reality, and this is why people march to the wide gate. Because in our sin and claiming to be wise, we became fools and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Jesus is warning His disciples to not trust in the popular, trendy thing of their day. He's telling them not to go with the crowd, not to assume easier means favor with God and life. Look, as Israel left Egypt and God was delivering them, and they walked through the narrow way of the Red Sea, and they marched that narrow path, they did not march right into the Promised Land. They marched straight into the desert where they were tried and tested. Who or what are you trusting in at this very moment in your life. The latest Jesus plus something else trend. The newest spiritual insight 
or Jesus Himself. If we look to our second point in verses 15 through 20, we see that Jesus is warning them now of false prophets. And He tells them to look for the fruits. Beware of false prophets, Jesus says, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Watch out! Look out! Beware! There are false prophets dressed in sheep's clothing. They are people that look like sheep. They act like sheep for a time. These are people that know how to put on a show. They even appear to be attractive sheep. Their teaching may even be right for a time being. They say the right things for a little while. They put on a religious mask to blend in all the while being ravenous wolves wanting to kill the sheep they are around. False prophets are not new to Jesus' time. Jeremiah had to deal with false prophets that rose up. And, and the Lord said to Jeremiah, the prophets are prophesying lies in My name. I did not send them, nor did I command them or speak to them. They are prophesying to you a lying vision, worthless divination, and the deceit of their own minds. False prophets are not new. This is why the Apostle John encourages his readers and says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. So then how can we know who's a sheep and who dresses up as one? Jesus tells us twice, you will recognize them by their fruits. He starts off by telling us that and ends. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. For every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Good and edible fruit will not grow in places where when you pluck it will harm you. Good fruit will not grow on thickets or thorn bushes or thistles so that when you reach in to grab it, it punctures a hole in your hand and hurts you. And a healthy tree does not bear rotten fruit, nor does a rotten tree bear good fruit. The only good thing for a bad tree is for firewood, which what Jesus means here in this case to be thrown into hell. 
There's a story of a, of a man that I know who told me about two apple trees in a place that he used to live. They were identical looking. But year after year, one of them would produce delicious apples. And the other one, just when you thought would produce delicious apples, produced nothing. His conclusion was that there must have been a disease in that one apple tree because throughout the whole entire year they looked identical up until the point that they were to bear fruit. And the one did not. We know false prophets by their fruits. Paul, Paul tells us what the fruits of the flesh and the fruits of the Spirit are. The works of the flesh are evidence, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But in case we're tempted just to look at the actions of a person, a, a false prophet is also a teacher. So over time, you will start to see doctrine that Jesus just didn't teach. You will see prideful excuses and you will see an unhealthy desire for controversies. This is at least what Paul tells Timothy. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, and slander. We will know false prophets by their fruits. This may take a little bit of time to see. Over time, though, their true colors will expose them You'll see who they really are. Who or what are you trusting in this very moment? The latest and greatest thought leader? Author? Teacher? Church, are you judging what you are hearing? And are you looking at the fruit of the one who is teaching you? The Christian should judge teachers. Now if we look to our third point in verses 21 through 
23, we will see the words or the works done by a person. We will see that the works of a person aren't enough. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. What Jesus is saying here is extremely disturbing. This idea of somebody saying, Lord, Lord, insinuates an intimate relationship with a person. So the person who's calling out to Jesus saying, Lord, Lord, believes that there is this intimate relationship that's going on between, between him and the Lord that he's calling out to. And yet what we see is that not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. However, the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus goes on to tell them why these people who cry out, Lord, Lord, will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy or preach or teach in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then Jesus will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. These religious people had some type of functioning relationship with God. They preached in His name. They cast out demons in His name. They did mighty works in His name. And yet, Jesus saw them. And when He looked at them, He saw lawlessness. He saw nothing but sin that stained them. He did not recognize them. He said, I don't know who you are. Depart from me. For I never knew you in the first place. So what Jesus is saying is you can go throughout your whole entire life believing that you're doing these things for the Lord. And yet at judgment say, Lord, look at what I've done. Lord, Lord. And he still might say, depart from me. But as Jesus said, he, he tells us, the, the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, that will be the person who enters the kingdom. So then, here's the question. What's the will of God? What's the will of God for us? First, the, the will of God is for you to believe unto Him. For you to believe in Him. This is His desire. That we would believe in Him. But next, Paul tells us, for this is the will of God. Your sanctification. 
that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Good works for the sake of good works will not gain us entrance into the kingdom of heaven. The will of God that Paul is describing here for the Christian is that we be worshipers of God. That through our daily lives, we would be sanctified by what is either taking place internally by the Holy Spirit or externally by the things that are around us. That we would be people that are devoted to worshiping God. Now, this does not mean that we then don't do good works. In fact, this gives us all the more reason to do good works, to worship God through our works. But we must understand that our works will not gain us entrance into God's kingdom. Everything you and I do is to worship our Creator. This is what sanctification looks like. Do you see what the problem is here in this passage? Do you see what these people were wrongly believing? Let me illustrate it to you like this. There were two people standing in front of God before going to heaven. And God said to the first, a man, why should I let you in to the kingdom? And the man started saying, well, God, I, I never missed a day of church. Every morning I opened my Bible and read. I, I prayed as often as I could. I led my family in devotions. I evangelized. I would even give the own coat off of my back to those that I saw walking on the street who I presumed were homeless. I always stopped to give $5 or pay for the person behind me. God, here, look at, look at what I've done. Look at, look at, here's all of these things. And God looks back at this person and says, I'm sorry. I don't know you. Depart from me. Then a lady comes up and God asks the same question, why should I let you into the kingdom? And the lady started humming a tune that she remembered from church. And then she closed her eyes and she started to sing, Jesus paid it all, all to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed me white as snow. I wonder what would have taken place if the people, instead of saying, Lord, Lord, we did this. Lord, Lord, we did that. Lord, Lord, we did this. I wonder if they would have just said, Lord, Lord, we believe in You. It is not by our works that we gain entrance into God's kingdom. It is by our faith in Christ that we gain entrance into His 
kingdom. If you are here with us this morning and you are not a Christian, can I tell you that no matter how many good works you do in your life, it will not be enough to enter into God's kingdom. Instead, what He does is He said, here's the free gift of eternal life. It's Jesus Christ and Jesus alone. And so here's the question to this point that I want to ask us. You know it's coming. Who or what are you trusting in this very moment? Are you trusting in your own good works? Or are you trusting in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? If we look then at the fourth and final point, in verses 24-29, through 29, Jesus tells His disciples of two different foundations. He tells them the foundation that they should build their house on. He says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but, the, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. When Jesus was preaching this, He was preaching in a location where when rain fell, it fell. And what would happen is there would be floods that would come and wash houses away that weren't built on a solid rock, a solid foundation. He's comparing the, the judgment to come like a storm that comes and washes houses away. But He encourages them and He assures them that if you listen to My words and you do My words and you build your house on the rock, then when the judgment comes, the house will stand because the foundation was on the rock. However, He tells us what happens if you don't build the foundation on or, or build the house on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell. And great was the fall of it. The wise, the wise men hear and do what Jesus has just taught. But the fools hear the teaching of Jesus and ignore it. And because of this, when the storm comes, when judgment comes, the house is washed away. Destruction takes place. Friends, have we not been hearing the words of Jesus? Have we not been challenged, comforted, convicted, lifted up? And so here's what we're faced with right now. Will we do what Jesus says? Will we listen and do it? 
Will we listen to his words and carry them out? Will we build on the solid rock or the sand? But some have been deeply wounded by the church, by teachers, by other Christians. So how can I trust what Jesus says? These last two verses give us great assurance. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. We can trust the words of Jesus because Jesus speaks with authority. He speaks with authority because Jesus himself even says, for I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me. So the authority that Jesus speaks with is the authority that he has been given to by the Father. Jesus is the Son of God who speaks with authority. He's the mouthpiece of the Father. So when Jesus is calling His disciples to be like the wise men who built their houses on the rock, Jesus is saying, trust Me. Trust My words. Brothers and sisters, Jesus can be trusted because His words are true and come with authority from heaven. So who or what are you trusting in at this moment? Are you hearing the words of Jesus, but saying, but Jesus, I can do this a bit more efficient. But Jesus, I can do this a little bit better. I hear you, Jesus, but I'm going to trust myself. Or are you hearing the words of Jesus and doing them? Are you building your house on Christ, the solid rock? Or on the sand? As we leave this morning, I'd just like to, one more time, call you, call me, call us as a congregation to trust in Jesus. Give Him your full attention now. Don't trust in the popular ways to enter the gate, the trendy ways. Trust Jesus. Don't trust the latest thought leaders or authors of this day. Trust Jesus. Don't trust in your own works. Trust Jesus. Don't trust in your own foolish wisdom. 
trust Jesus. I'll confess, I didn't know how to finish this sermon. I sat upstairs at my desk, and I couldn't think of how to finish this sermon, but the song continued to pop into my head, wrote in the early 1900s, so I'm just going to sing a few of the lyrics. Well, I'm going to say a few of the lyrics as we leave here. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take Him at His word. Just to rest upon His promise, just to know, thus saith the Lord. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust Him, how I've proved Him o'er and o'er. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust Him more. Let us pray. To this end, God, establish us in Christ. Settle us. Give us being there. Assure us with certainty that all this is ours. For this only will fill our hearts with joy.